Hello, and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. I'm Natasha Mascarenas, and joining me is senior TechCrunch reporter and my bestie, Marianne Azevedo. Marianne, how are you? I'm good. Excited to be here again. I know. It's always fun when we're running the show. I remember there was one week at Crunchbase where it was just women on the team, and we just were like, let's make everything like, let's blow everything up. So I think that should be the energy we'd have for today's show as well. I love it. <laughs> I love it. We are talking about fintech and edtech, but we're starting with a mixed bag of funding rounds. I think we should start with what's happening in UK. Marshmallow recently raised $85 million on a $1.25 billion valuation for, and I'll read from the headline directly, a more inclusive big data take on car insurance. Marianne, I know you've been doing insure tech coverage. Is this idea of like inclusive insure tech popular? Is this new? How how like shocking is this headline to you? It's not shocking. I think it's probably a big deal for a couple of reasons in the UK. Number one, it's one of the few UK startups with black founders to become a unicorn. So that's very cool in and of itself, just outside of the whole insurance angle. They are following a similar approach to some insure techs here in the US where they're using data and algorithms so that they can help provide more affordable rates to more people and get a more diverse set of customers. So that's where the inclusion piece comes in. I was so surprised how much bias is baked into those rates. When I was talking to a competitor, actually, they were telling me about how a lot of legacy providers would offer their rates based on credit score, income, marital status, and education, which obviously like hurts low-income individuals. It's kind of crazy when you think about it. This has been a, a sector that's been ripe for disruption for a long, long time. I think many of us who do own cars and have insurance are paying way more than we should. I think the more players that can make this more fair for more people the better. I know their customer demographic is the ages 20 to 40, and it looks like they're trying to attract younger users too, because they want long-term loyalty. Totally. I, I will, I'll add one last bearish point on InsureTech. Alex wrote a piece about how the markets have not been reacting super well to public neo-insurance startups. A lot of startups continue to raise in the category, but exit opportunities might be a challenge down the road. Quite frankly, a lot of these companies are just not profitable and they're like nowhere near it. And so I think those economics can be a turnoff to investors. And until you see that those numbers changing, they may not continue to do well in the public markets. Speaking of difficult economics, last week we talked about all birds going public and how direct to consumer CPG products are just a hard business to pull off which is part of the reason our next funding round surprised me. We saw LV top up its Series C to $97 million. And for those who don't know, LV is a woman's health tech brand and made a connected breast pump, actually beat a lot of the competitors in the market that have since shut down. And they also have a smart pelvic floor exerciser. We're founded in 2013 and are another UK-based startup raising. What were your first thoughts on LV? As a mother who has breastfed, it is interesting to me, like the thought of a connected breast pump is quite compelling. I was intrigued that they were the highest single breast pump skew revenue drive on Amazon here in the US. I'm not shocked because if you've ever had to use a breast pump, they, it's, I mean, it's like a torture device, like at least the ones <laughs> that I had to use. It really is. It's painful. It's uncomfortable, bulky. I think it's incredible that they've, they've managed to come up with something that's portable and connected. It's mm -hmm. like, it kind of blows my mind personally. Yeah. I mean, thank you for that context. I think it's so smart for a company to start with a woman's very frustrating situation. And again, like archaic 
kind of technology that existed in the past and kind of bring a fresh take to it. My only worry for LV, and I wonder if this was part of the reason some of its competitors eventually died, was you buy it once and then you don't buy it again. As I've been covering women's health companies, most of them have been on the software side. But a similarity I saw between LV and even a company like Maven is that they're starting to brand about becoming about women's health at all life stages versus just pregnancy, which I think will be hard for a hardware company versus a software company. Right. Well, LV does also have a smart pelvic floor exerciser. So I guess it's also hoping that that will be attractive to women who are no longer new moms too. So maybe it's meeting a different segment of the female population. Move us on to the last funding round section. Marianne, you wrote about Lean, which was built by the former head of Mint and also isn't the first Mint alum company that happened this year. So walk us through what Lean is all about. Founder of Lean is Tilak Joshi. His goal was to give gig workers a way to have financial benefits. He's working with marketplaces to help them offer those benefits to the workers. I loved what you said, too, about how they're going directly to the marketplace instead of trying to go directly to its consumer, quote unquote, because those seem like the hardest kinds of contracts to pull off. Gig economy is so tied to tension with their workers. So if you can get the gig economy on board with a way to help workers, that is like badass. I think a lot of people seem really excited about the potential here. As far as I know, I haven't seen anything quite like it. There are a lot of companies out there trying to help gig workers with getting paid faster, getting, you know, things like that. But when it comes to benefits, I haven't seen much of that personally. I wanted to ask one last question before we move on about how this company makes money, because it it confused me a little bit because it's apparently it's no cost to marketplaces or workers. So how does it become a business? (laughs) Yeah, I asked the same question. I was like, well, what's your revenue model then? And um, I was told that they expect to earn revenue through the fees associated with the movement of money via its platform. So is that kind of like similar to some neobanks where they make money off of like a transaction fee? That's how I interpreted it. Maybe there's like interchange is appropriate word. But yeah, there's probably fees associated with that movement of money. And so that's where they're expecting to monetize. Our next Two segments will be about edtech and fintech. So I wanted to start off with with mine selfishly because I just wrote a whole <laughs> whole feature that's been in the pipeline for actually a few weeks about edtech engaging with the creator economy. About a year ago, I noticed a company called Maven that was building their whole startup around this concept of cohort-based courses. And their whole pitch was honestly really aspirational. They wanted to democratize access to knowledge by tweaking the definition of who teaches who. They were built on helping influencers or people that were already kind of outspoken or good at Twitter threads start classes. And then kind of a year later, we're seeing these companies still raise, still grow, but there has been a new tension that's been forming. And this creates the basis of my piece. On one end, it's awesome that now the star PM of a company could create a class about like all the tips they have. On the other hand, people are questioning if this is rooted in true pedagogy and if everyone should be able to teach or if we should leave the teaching kind of up to traditional definitions or people who are qualified to instruct on mass scale. Yeah, I I have to first say this is an incredible piece. It's incredibly well researched. (laughs) I mean, so well done. So so if you haven't read it, you got to read it because it's it's really, really good. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I think there are benefits to having a person who's considered an expert at something trying to teach others who want to learn how to do that something. There's nothing worse than being taught 
something by someone who's never actually like practiced or worked in a profession really. Yeah, I think the startups in this category, the new bet, and I think like a lot of the story is about how it's basically believing that anyone can be a teacher if they have the right resources. It's both a bet in that can anyone teach? Like, should anyone teach? Or do you need to be a professor? And that's the only way that you're allowed to share your knowledge at scale. Well, like I said, I could see the value of that expertise. But there was a quote by one of the individuals that you interviewed was like, well, just because you can teach doesn't mean you should teach, right? Like not everyone has that skill. Teaching is not easy. I mean, you could know a lot about a particular subject and you may be really great at it, but can you translate that into teaching others how to do it? That's a skill that not everyone has. So this is where I feel like it becomes a little tricky. I was talking to a very popular creator who has been offered to teach a bunch of times. And she was kind of saying what you're saying. She was like, I could pull back the curtain. I could tell people everything about my craft, but I just don't want to. And I think some companies assume that creators are just looking for new ways to monetize or new ways to share their message. She basically was like, it's not a one size fits all for creators ever. So kind of branding it as like anyone can kind of start to create their community into a class could be a little difficult for actual like learning experiences. I would agree with that. I, don't, I just don't think just anybody can do it. And I think to try to simplify it that way is just, it's just kind of wrong, honestly. I think, um, I think it's great for more opportunities for both people to share their expertise and for people to learn. I'm not saying you have to be a professor. Right. I'm not saying that you have to have like a degree in education by any means. No, not at all. But, you know, certain people are better teachers than others, for sure. Yeah. I think the the pro argument to kind of like balance this out a little bit too is like really built on what you're saying, Marianne, and that you don't have to be all these things, but maybe these startups can help form creators who are really passionate about teaching into instructors or people who can one day be a really effective teacher. And so I think the new wave of startups based on the VCs and even the startups themselves that I've talked to have basically said like there has to be more accountability built into creators turned teachers, aka you can be a teacher, fine, but you have to do things and put in the work, which can sometimes be dozens and dozens of hours of work. And so now if you're kind of like a creator who, who doesn't have much time, it might naturally filter people out. That's what kind of gave me hope because philosophically, it's hard to disagree with the idea of like knowledge being more accessible, but the quality of the knowledge will be like the true test for all of these, I think. One last like shout out is Jamira Herrera, who I actually quoted in the piece, but she's a partner at Reach. And she wrote a story about the education revolt and some kind of key drivers and shifts happening. She mentioned how like hashtag learn on TikTok has a over 130 billion views. It's kind of Gen Z's take on TikTok wanting to learn from creators they trust. So we know it's happening. I think you're right. And I think especially the younger generations who are influenced by TikTok and people on it in ways that some of us who are a little older may not be. Um, and I don't mean that as an insult by any means. I, I have a, a son, a teenager, so like I can see it. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I think it's a good point. Let's talk about fintech. It's a hard pivot. Basically, this whole week's theme has been buy now, pay later. You've written 17 stories about this. <laughs> Where should we start? Should we start with PayPal? How do you how are you feeling right now? Yeah, I think that's a good that's a good place to start. I mean, it's been a week full of buy now, pay later news. PayPal acquired Payti. Is yeah, that we pronounce yeah. it Payti in Japan for $2.7 billion. And that's to to enter the Asian market. So that's a huge deal, not just money wise. Well, so what the last time we talked about buy now, pay later, or we wanted to was when Square bought Afterpay. 
And then seeing this deal, I kind of put them in the same level of like, oh my gosh, like, let me pause. This is a big bet on buy now, pay later. I think it really just speaks to just how prevalent buy now, pay later is. Clearly not this fad or trend that some may have thought it would be. I mean, it's here to stay. It's growing in popularity and usage and it's becoming quite mainstream. I mean, can you buy anything anymore online that doesn't give you an option to pay in installments? Yeah. It's, it feels like it's everywhere. Which is an insane like place to be as a society because I 110% remember life before that. Well, for those of us who are on the older side, we remember <laughs> something called layaway. But the difference with layaway and buy now, pay later is with layaway, you didn't get to take it home. You had to leave it at the store until you'd paid in full. In Latin America, for example, there's still a lot of that, right? This layaway concept. A lot of people are just used to paying for purchases that way. So the idea of buy now, pay later in, in Latin America, I think is not as foreign. It's just formalizes it for people and makes it easier for people to buy things and get to take them home without having to wait. One of the other companies that was in the news this week is Addy, and they raised $75 million as an extension to their Series B to advance buy now, pay later. And they're in Colombia, they're in Brazil. Um, and I think they're planning to expand to Mexico next year. Interestingly, that round was led by US-based firm Graycroft okay. and included uh, participation from GGB Capital and a, a ton of other firms, uh, Anderson Horwitz. Classic. So <laughs> yeah, of course, um, they're everywhere. So anyway, yeah, I think it's just another example of how this is growing globally. And I think Latin America is definitely a, a region that will be very open to it as, as there's been more digital adoption in general and just the idea of having this opportunity to pay for things over time. The connection between layaway and BNPL is just one I hadn't thought of in so long. I just wouldn't think to put them together, but I think that is makes so much sense and gives a little bit of understanding why it took off so fast is that it was a consumer habit. It wasn't like it popped up overnight. I think Addy's raise was interesting. And apparently like this year, I think they said they've grown GMV and their ARR by 13 times. So the the demand is there. They have more than 150,000 customers growing Damn. 30 to 40% yeah, month over month. So that was pretty, pretty interesting. And I mean, this is an extension round. So I mm -hmm. never really expect an extension round to massively change valuation. But in your story, it said that the new valuation had nearly tripled from what it was before their first kind of bit of their series B. That's impressive as well. Yeah, they just raised in May $35 million in an equity oh round um, <laughs> led by Union Squares. Right, what was that, four months ago? Yeah. Not even? Yeah, so you're talking just a few months, and they'd also raised some debt. They're actually, their extension totaled more than the first tranche of the round. $75 million was more than that $65 okay. equity and debt combined. So total round size is now $140 million if you count the $30 million debt. So PayPal showed us how big Japan's buy now pay later market is Adi is showing Adi Adi is showing us how big Latin America's buy now pay later market is but Zip a recent acquisition from them after a string has shown us how big Africa's is so we saw that Zip based in Australia acquired Payflex and Payflex is based in Africa and we're seeing Zip kind of go into Africa through this acquisition it's not even like the first acquisition they made this past year they've bought one in the Czech Republic. They bought a company in Australia. We're seeing them take a really offensive view at acquiring all these startups. Marianne, when you see kind of a company that's in this space start to acquire other companies with similar visions, 
Is there anything kind of non-obvious or surprising you think they're doing strategy-wise? Or is it as simple as we want more market reach? I think Zip, which is based in Australia, sees sees the potential in a market like Africa. Um, Payflex is based in South Africa, and Tage, the author of the piece, really really does an excellent job of illustrating just how Africa seems to be really ready for this buy now, pay later services. And I think Zip is smart to recognize that. So by acquiring a player that already exists in the space, it's much easier for them than trying to just enter the market themselves, right? I mean, they're buying Payflex. It's uh, based in South Africa. And as I understand, it's the largest buy now, pay later player in South Africa. So I think that's a pretty smart strategy, right? Like why try to go in and enter a market when you can just buy a player that's already trusted, already exists and already growing. So I feel like that could be why they chose to go that route and continue to acquire across the world. I mean, Tejas Kicker really, yeah, encapsulated it well too. He was like, we all know that BNPL is not a winner takes all market as a result of just the news over the past week. But seeing all these global focused raises and acquisitions just makes me wonder what else is going on here other than e-commerce boom or just an, a realization. Was there anything that like kind of as you were connecting the dots between all these raises that stood out to you as a potential reason we saw all of these happen in one week? Or do you think it was just like funny timing? I think it could be coincidental, but also, I mean, again, it just speaks to the growing popularity of buy now, pay later. And I think the consumer demand is there. And that's really what's driving a lot of these rounds and acquisitions because people, the companies can see that. And so it's there. I I feel like it would be irresponsible though, not to mention that there, there are some arguments that buy now, pay later is not as like rosy of a concept as it may yeah. seem because, you know, some people argue that it could be contributing to, uh, or it could be considered irresponsible lending in the way that like some credit cards are kind of accused of of allowing people to get in over their heads, you know, charging too much. And so I feel like that's something that if you're going to be in the space, you need to pay attention to maybe work in. Like, for example, I interviewed a company earlier this week. I asked them, well, well, you know, what are you going to do? What if they don't pay you back in a month? And they said, well, we won't keep lending them money. So I feel like if you're going to do this sort of thing, you need to have some things in place so that you don't want to help people get further into debt or get in over their heads. I'm so happy you said that because it is so easy to get really excited by the valuations and the money going into it. But it's still kind of in its infancy in a way. A firm just went public. Like we don't have years and years of ups and downs to go off of. And I think you made a point that I want to double click on before we head to our last item, which is how buy now, pay later lines up with credit. I know there's some arguments that it's a threat to credit. But do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I would say it's a threat to credit cards. And I think all the credit card giants can see that from, you know, Visa and MasterCard. As more and more people opt to use buy now, pay later rather than charging purchases on their credit cards. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I don't know how credit card companies are going to address this. Are they going to try to get in the game themselves somehow by yeah. through acquisitions or partnerships or what. But my humble opinion and buy now pay later is absolutely a threat. And I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon. Let's end with a kind of fun story. A rideable robot unicorn made a headline this week. Shocker. It's basically a, a Chinese EV maker has literally created a robot unicorn meant for children to ride and provide emotional interaction it will be as tall as a child, which I just thought was like such a fun detail for Grace to include in the script, actually. Um, what what do we even say about this? I don't know. It's just hilarious to me. You have kids. Would you put your kid on yeah. one of these? 
Uh, no, I probably wouldn't. But for a few things, first of all, it probably would be way out of my budget because I think <laughs> they didn't say in this article, but it's probably something that would cost like thousands of dollars. So not many people could afford it to begin with. I think it would be a little scary. I mean, what if it took off, right? And your kid's on it and, you know, they could like really get hurt. But but then again, you know, I just I'm a little overly protective like that but I think also the article says that it doesn't sound like they're really trying to make this like a toy out there they're just I feel like it's more of an experiment for the company but either way it's like a crazy concept and and if you just look at it the picture is just crazy yeah it's kind of like a very <laughs> expensive gimmick to have because I'm guessing this is going to help them it's help it's working right now it's going to help people talk about them and then eventually right. they'll start doing like more mature less dangerous robots down the road um, yeah, it's it's like a more like palpable robot in a funny way than some of the Boston Dynamics robots because those feel like you're about they're about to take over the world. This one feels like it's about to run off with your child. Like yeah, I feel like there yeah. has to be a middle ground. <laughs> right? Yeah, I feel like they're very, yeah they're very different. Um, definitely definitely different because those the spot for example, I feel like it has some really potentially awesome applications like with healthcare for example and things like that. But this is just amusing to me and and besides. The fact that I don't think many parents would actually want to buy one. I don't think I don't know how many kids would actually want to get on that thing either. So I guess like that you heard, you heard it here first. Equity will be doing their show from a rideable robot unicorn <laughs> next week. Marianne, thank you for a delightful show. Always a pleasure to record with you. And before you go, just one last quick but exciting announcement. TechCrunch Disrupt is almost here. Our flagship conference is being held on Hopin this year, so hang out with us virtually September 21st through September 23rd. There's going to be a ton of really cool interviews, breaking news, and definitely some spicy panels you don't want to miss. Head to techcrunch.com disrupt for more information.